Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my colleague, the poet Padraig Otuma, interviews poet and cultural critic Hanif Abdurraqib. This is the unedited version of that interview. The shorter version, with wonderful music, is this week's Produced on Being. So, Hanif, I am uh, thrilled to talk to you. And a question I'd like to ask you is to tell us um, your earliest memory of music. Um, The first song I remember hearing, or the first song I have a vivid memory of, is weirdly a song that gave me a nightmare when I was a kid. Um, And I, I don't remember my dreams much and never have, but I remember this so vividly that the details of the nightmare still stick with me. And that song was Nina Simone's version of Pirate Jenny from her 1964 concert album. And, um, you know, of course, Pirate Jenny is a song that first got its uh, notoriety in the Three Penny Opera. But Nina Simone, as gifted as she is was at many things, was perhaps most gifted at taking songs that were perhaps not constructed with Black people or a Black experience in mind in molding them to haunt the edges of Blackness, be it for good or for bad. And so, um, you know, and I, this definitely is the first song I heard, but it is the first song, you know, I was, I, I was raised uh, Muslim. And so that means that when I was born, my father sung the call to prayer in my ear, my right ear. Um, and so that was the first song I heard. But the first song I remember is Nina Simone's Pirate Jenny because her rendition of it, you know, with what little I knew about the horrors of slavery, um, I could easily map onto her singing of that song where I thought, um, you know, the this, this song is about uh, a woman getting revenge on a town that has ridiculed her and a boat rolls into the town and flattens the town and then the woman rides off with pirates. But through the lens of Nina Simone, it was easy to see how that could be transformed into um, a slightly more horrific narrative, um, but powerful narrative yeah. about, about a slave revolt. That gave me a nightmare when I was a kid and I still remember the details of that nightmare wow. to this day. And, um, and it, yet it is a nightmare I'm, I'm grateful for because I think it speaks to the power of Nina Simone's uh, rearticulation of existing song. Yeah, and it speaks to the power of performance and what it can achieve as well in the listener, because that is such a concern of yours in so much of your writing, especially in the most recent book, uh, Little Devil in America, the question about the relationship between performance and audience, as well as stage director and whoever is managing behind the scenes. That's an area that you delve right into and you look at all the ways that that can be troubled and viewed through the lens of multiplicities. I'm looking forward to talking to you about some of those things. Yeah, for sure, for sure. When it comes to hearing the call to prayer and and being told that that was the first thing you'd have heard, even though you have no memory of it, is there a religious story to your life? Um, is religion as there is a cultural background or something that you practice regularly? Or 
I, I definitely don't practice it regularly. Although, you know, now, I mean, we're speaking at an interesting time because uh, it is day four of Ramadan. And so I am fasting, which is something that I do return to, you know, for all the ways that I don't really uh, return to um, faith and a relationship with faith. I, I do return to, to, to fasting because I think, um, you know, it requires a level of discipline that I need, I think, and almost re- that I require. Um, and it requires a level of focus that I think realigns my life. And it does bring me closer to a sense of wonder beyond myself. I mean, one, you know, I, I particularly during the pandemic, I live alone. I work in my house alone. And so it's easy to fall into a place where I'm marveling at my own self, (laughs) you know, not even in a way that is fueled by arrogance or Mm -hmm. fueled by, but just because it's fueled by isolation. And so I'm, I'm marveling at what is at my disposal and much of what is at my disposal is my own interior. And so it, it is healthy for me even though I don't consider myself as someone with a large ego to detach from my ego a bit and fall into um, the beauty of a routine um, that involves getting up early and watching the sunrise. And, you know, for me, the thing about Ramadan is not, it's not really about the pleasures or agonies of not consuming food or water, but it's more about, again, like orbiting the outskirts of, that action and seeing where it takes me. Yeah. And fasting is a certain form of form as well. I was reading right. the way you talk about um, form in poetry because you are known for many reasons when it comes to your writing, you know, as a music journalist, as a culture critic and a music critic, as well as a poet and prose writer and essayist. Um, and I, I saw that you wrote that when it comes to writing poetry, you listen to the poem back in order to discern the form that it has. Yeah, yeah, I play, I mean, no, well, I can't say no one. I do not like hearing the sound of my own voice, certainly. Um, But I do believe that our voices, when we're reading things we wrote particularly, it's it's a revelatory thing. Um, You know, we tell on ourselves through, or I at least, I, I try to never use the communal we, so let me backtrack from that. Um, you know, for me, I, I definitely tell on myself when I'm reading things that I've written in, in um, language, when pressed up against other language, makes certain sounds that I'm not necessarily aware of when I look at it on the page. And so I record myself reading my first drafts, and that helps me more in the editing process than anything else, to hear myself kind of um, working through or fighting through um, what sound means to me and the symphonic nature of the writing, which I, I do believe in. I believe the poem should be a symphony. I believe poets should be conductors and band leaders. Um, and and that feels that feels important to me. And so yeah, sound is vital. And are you often surprised to hear a certain kind of melody or sound or percussion in a poem that would seem perhaps to be at odds with the content of the poem? Is is there a, a, a discovery that's unknown to you until you hear it back? 
I think so. I mean, I, I think also for me, it's a, it's a matter of pace and a matter of tone. I like to know when a poem should swell. I like to know when a poem should ramp down. I should, I like to know when a poem should sonically crescendo. All of these things that for me are very rooted in my understanding of music, um, come to life when I am reading the poem. And I used to, this is in part because I came up in slam, you know, I came up, um, when I first started writing poems in 2011, I didn't have any aspirations about book writing. I, I really, you know, I couldn't, um, I was getting fewer jobs as a music critic because editors said my work was too poetic and too meandering. And I didn't take that as a suggestion that I should stop writing the way I wrote. I took it as a suggestion that I should begin to perfect. I didn't know anything about poems, you know, so I figured I, I needed to perfect my poetic voice. I didn't even know what that meant, you know, but my, my curiosity led me to say, well, if this is something I'm doing organically, then maybe I can figure out how to do it well and well enough. How interesting. So I, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. I'm thinking how interesting that the editors heard something that you hadn't heard yet. And rather than hearing what they were saying um, as a criticism, you heard it as, a, as an invitation into an art form. Yeah, I mean, it was exciting to me, you know. To, to Coming up, I didn't know much about poetry at all. High school teachers now are... Uh, you know, and, and I will say that high school teachers when I was coming up were doing their best with what they had. Perhaps poetry um, has not, was not as much of a, did not have as many media touchstones and access points when I was in high school. So I didn't know anything about contemporary poets, particularly not contemporary black poets. And when I first started writing poems, I just read a lot. I asked people for book recommendations. And because I grew up reading liner notes on albums and reading, I loved reading acknowledgements and seeing who was aligned with whom and like who was shouting out whom, all this stuff. And I did the same with poetry books. I would get a poetry book, I would read to the end. And if a poet said, well, I'd like to thank this person I learned from, this poet I learned from, I would circle those names and go get those books and read their acknowledgements and circle those names. And get. So I was building a poetic lineage without even knowing I was doing it. But more importantly, I knew I had to start writing poems and I wasn't really motivated to write poems, but at one of the poetry slams here, if you wanted to participate in the slam, you had to bring like a poem, a new poem every week or a couple new poems every week. And so I didn't really care about slam as a form or function at first. I was just kind of like, well, this is what will get me to write poems. This will give me like a built-in deadline. And what did you hear in um, reading your poems uh, at poetry slam events? Was there something too in the performance of the poems in that environment that you heard back yourself? Oh yeah, because the audience is encouraged, right? The audience is encouraged to react in real time to what they're hearing. And so if someone heard something they like, you could hear a noise from the audience, you know, a kind of affirmative, uh, an affirmative shout or um, an affirmative hum, these type things. And so you, you, you get a sense in a way, and if you read the same poem in enough rooms, you know, uh, and you hear enough of those affirmative sounds coming at the same point in the poem, you kind of get a sense for like, oh, okay, I know what's working now. I know what in this poem is, is working better than what's working in the other poems. How can I get this poem, the other parts of this poem to rise to the level 
of that part? Or how do I build to that part more efficiently? These kind of things. It's, it's, it's real time. It's almost like a real time editing tool. Yeah. You know? So much of poetry um, is, is so much of poetry is seen to be solitary, but the way you write about your poetry and also, excuse me, <clears throat> the way you write about poetry and also the the people that you put into your poetry, the way you populate your poetry, is so interactive. It is so filled with people, with friends, with experiences, with characters who are in multiple forms doing really interesting things. Do you think that that says something about your, you as a personality, that you're interested in that kind of community experience? A little bit, but, you know, I, I learned that in some ways from Frank O'Hara, right, who was one of my first favorite poets. Um, and the thing I love about Frank O'Hara is that so often, you know, he writes his friends, he would write his friends and, and the people in his life into poems as though you knew them your whole life as though they were your friends, as though you might turn on your couch and be sitting next to them. Um, it's one thing to talk about building a, a living and breathing world, so to speak, but it's another thing to really populate that world in a way that allows for people who are not in that world to feel like it is, it's still theirs. They still have a little bit of access to it. Um, and, and that's kind of, you know, I want to name the people I love in my work so that they can live somewhere outside of this kind of fenced in and pleasureful garden of my life and imagination. Um, I want them to have a small bit of immortality the way that the way that these things work when we put people or places in our poems. I like to name the things that were in the neighborhood that I grew up loving that no longer looks like the neighborhood I grew up loving. I want to offer uh, a chance to live beyond what the world allows people in places. Hmm. Um, when I was reading some of your poems, you know, there's that one about Jeff's mom and the car and throwing the ring out of the car. And then another, in another poem, Jeff turns up again. I, I felt like I was greeting somebody that I'd met through the lens of your poetry. And I have that experience throughout your work, that there's the particularity. And you're not saying the particularity is universal. You're just saying the particularity is the particularity. And I get brought to a place and I see that um, doors are opened to experiences of your life. Yeah, you know, and that's the trick, right, is that um, I'm so big on returns and returning. Um, and I'm so big on reminding people that I'm not exactly done with an, an idea or a thought. When I was working on, when I started working on my second book of poems, I really started wrestling with this idea that for me, writing one poem doesn't mean I'm done with the poem. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and perhaps in my first book that shows up too, because there are some kind of repetitive things, the barbershop poems, for example, yeah. but really taking that to another level with fortune for your disaster in particular, because I would finish a poem and I'd still, I would still be curious or I'd still be thinking about the thing. And instead of saying, well, I'll just go back to it later. I got good at saying, why don't I just rewrite that poem and try a different angle, try to enter it from a different place. And, um, I think that's so much easier for me to do in a poem where it feels like I have um, a little 
a little more room to stretch out ideas over the course of several bodies of work. Listening seems to be something that I hear over and over again um, for you, like even the word audience, you know, that comes from the Latin word meaning to listen. So does mm-hmm. audit. Um, and there's there's power and <clears throat> there's power and there's politics in the question of audience. But then there's also self-care and self-reflection and self-challenge in the experience of listening to yourself. You uncover so many multiples of the experience of listening and look at the experience of listening in public, in private, in safe ways, as well as in ways that don't feel safe and that are not safe. You do that over and over again throughout your prose and your writing. What is it about listening as a as an act and listening as an artistic act as well as listening as a public political act that is of such interest to you? Well, I think it's because I grew up um, listening in somewhat joyful but isolated ways. I, you know, I'm the youngest of four and I grew up in a house that was, you know, teeming with music and varied music interests and Um, that meant that for me, a lot of, uh, there was a lot of listening on headphones because there was almost always music playing. Um, you know, I feel like when the house was at its fullest, you could hear music coming from the basement and from the third floor at the same time. Um, and that also made me a close listener. It made me listen for the things that I maybe was not supposed to be hearing or the secrets that the tricks that people hide in their work, which actually comes to life in poems. You know, I always talk about one of my favorite poems. um, And I think that Terrence Hayes does this trick often where he's, he doesn't really care if you get the the trick that he's pulling, but he seems really self-satisfied. Have you ever read that poem? What it looked like that Terrence Hayes poem? Uh, I've read all of, um, American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin. That's the main book of his that I've read. So, so what it looked like opens uh, How to Be Drawn. Okay. And there's this thing he does in the beginning where he's kind of like, it's like I always say, never mistake what it is for what it looks like. And then (laughs) the poem begins to unfold and unravel a bit. And then near the end, about the third act of the poem, he does this trick where it's like, it's like I said, never mistake what it looks like for what it is. (laughs) And it's just this, it's very small, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, for me, it's like a peak Terrence Hayes thing because it's a very small trick. But it's one that for me makes me go, wait a minute. I don't think that's what he said the first time. You know, and I have to scroll back up, you know? Um, and I, lo- I just love that. Like, I, I think because of the relationship I have with like close listening that informed the way I hear music, listening for things like inverted bass lines on, on Pet Sounds, the Beach Boys album, uh, that kind of stuff. I'm listening for the trick always, always down to be fooled. And, uh, not, and not in a large scale way, obviously, but I love being fooled by an artist who is trying to pull one over and I love catching them trying. <laughs> you do that in some of your poems too. Like you've got some poems that are a whole setup and then the final line or two will introduce this entirely new theme. In the poem, you know, when we were 13, 
Jeff's Father. It's got such a long title. It's a magnificent title. Um, it, it's describing, you know, Jeff's father who was left. Um, and the soundtrack to this um, poem is Don't Stop Believing by Journey on their album Escape. And there's so much about escaping happening in the poem. And then right at the end, we hear this moment of you being in a home in a space that's um, empty because of your mother's death and your father saying, play me something, child. And that too feels like a trick, having hidden this experience of profound grief of your own childhood in an experience of observing grief and catharsis in your friend and your friend's mother. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because um, I think there's a way to get people so much of what I do in my work, I think is kind of masking larger concerns in lines of inquiry in popular culture and the comforts of popular culture and the comforts of what some people might consider to be familiar. And that is the case, I think, because um, I quite simply cannot on my own uh, cope with the realities of what I've endured. And I'm doing that mostly for myself and not for, um, and, and not for anyone else though. I, I do think it works uh, to serve people beyond myself, but I think that, um, you know, trying to be open and thoughtful and generous with myself and to be comfortable um to be comfortable with everything I've worked through, um, you know, I, I need that scaffolding. I need a gentler, gentler scaffolding. Hmm. Earlier on, you were saying that you're uncomfortable with the idea of speaking in plurals, you know, saying we all experience this or we know this or we know that. You rather conjugate that to speak for yourself. Um, but I often feel like you are asserting in your essays on cultural criticism that even the self, too, is a collection of individuals, that, that there's a multiplicity and that there's a desire never to be boxed by the way that somebody might want to say, because I know this about you, therefore I can assume this about you. You seem to um, seek to move out from any of those categorizations and seek to um, assert that that isn't a way to approach anybody in performance or in personhood. Yeah, I mean, because... Today, I will be more than one person, you know? The person I am right now talking to you is not the person I'm going to be later on when I have a phone call scheduled to catch up with one of my old friends. <laughs> that person is not gonna be the same person who, you know, drags myself to the kitchen to, to cook dinner, even though I'm probably tired. Um, and that won't be the same person who kind of quietly plays video games in the darkness of my living room. All these things mean that I am almost required, I think, to not just speak for myself, but to speak for the reality that I am someone who carries with me multiple selves. And to carry those multiple selves means um, that I have to, to, again, honor not just who I am in one moment, um, but honor the fluidity of moments to come, uh, which means that, which for me means that I, I'm very comfortable with being incorrect. 
Um, I'm very comfortable with crawling my way towards changing and changing my ideas and feelings about something. Um, and there's a real humility in that awareness for me because it is much easier to be egoless for me when I realize um, that I am multiple people stacked on top of each other, <laughs> you know, yeah. and all of them have their own emotional landscape to tend to at any moment from hour to hour um, even. And that requires work that uh, pulls me away from self-admiration in the mirror type of stuff, you know, Yeah. Um, to be, to love oneself is hard work, but I think it becomes harder when you realize that you're actually, at least in my case, required to love multiple versions of yourself that show up without warning throughout a day, throughout a week, throughout a month, throughout a life. Mm. I'd like to stay talking about this, but maybe to expand the way that we're talking about it into your work in examining black performance through your most recent book, A Little Devil in America, because you put the often singularities that are imposed upon performers under a spotlight and you don't spend too much time dealing with some of the stories of the individuals, often you put a particular spotlight on the audience expectation and the ways that audiences are yearning to be able to categorize a particular performer and that the performer knows that they are multiple, but that the audience can sometimes resist that. Could you talk a little right. bit more about that and the way that you bring yourself to that in your cultural criticism? Yeah, I mean, well, audiences, I, I don't, um, you know, so much of Little Devil's Project is uplifting stories and narratives of black performers and black performers in ways that they were not afforded by white audiences because of the sometimes narrow lens of a scope of a white audience that feels interested and invested in distilling a black performer down to their needs, right? Yeah. The white audience's needs and that's it. It's like here in the States, you know, when, um, Stacey Abrams, among other organizers, did the work to um, flip Georgia to to a, like a democratic state. All these white liberals were, to me, just dehumanizing Stacey Abrams because they didn't know how to engage. So often these folks don't know how to engage with a black person doing something that pleases them. And so they're just like, well, this person should be a superhero. This person should be, give them a Marvel movie. This person should have a cape. And it's like, that's a person you're talking about, like a whole person, you know? Um, but I think that's very much aligned with, you know, in A Little Devil in America, I talk about a couple instances of black performers in the vaudeville era uh, either dying on stage or passing out critically on stage and then later dying. Um, Black Herman and Burt Williams. Mm. You know, both times that happened, the white audiences assumed that those collapses on stage were a part of an act. And so Burt Williams was on stage uncared for for several minutes while the audience applauded and whatnot. Mm. And um, it is perhaps too on the nose to say that that is a direct parallel 
and, and what I see when I witness white audiences reacting to uh, black performers, even black labor now. But I do think that it, it does hover around that. I mean, that's, that's a, um, if anything, it's a bit of an extended metaphor that has extended through decades and lifetimes. And, um, you know, this is a country that does not know how to, I think, adequately and effectively celebrate and uplift the fullness of a black person's living unless they have been, unless they have died hmm. or been killed or done something extraordinary that serves empire. And there's a complicity in audience there because audience isn't just a population of people. Audience is a group of people who have a very particular and powerful expectation about what they want to see, what they want to witness. And there can be a revolt in audience if that desire, predatory as it can sometimes be, isn't met. And you put that action of audience, that action of white audience, under the spotlight so powerfully in this latest book. As a, and alongside that, you also depict experiences of audience where there is such a powerful reciprocal engagement. There is um, a quote that I wanted to bring you out about because I found it so moving. Let me bring it here. You're speaking about Aretha Franklin um, mm. singing in the Amazing Grace um, recording that then later on got turned into a movie and talking about the way that the experience between singer and listener in a church is being created into this um, collaborative experience of joy and weeping and explosion of emotion. Yeah, yeah, gosh. I, You know, I've watched Amazing Grace like uh so many times <laughs> so so many times i've watched it twice during the pandemic you oh. know and i'm not someone who i didn't grow up in the church you yeah. know uh, i don't really have a relationship with the church except for through music through sound through um a, you know kind of a kind of relationship with how music can live in the spirit and the soul and um you know, that, that feels, uh, gosh, Amazing Grace feels so important to me um, because of that. Yeah. And to spend some time with what it means to get to the heart of um, a kind of seeking a higher power through sound. Yeah. That, that's, that's, uh, that feels important to me. So I love Amazing Grace a great yeah. deal. Speaking about it, you wrote, um, you know, the footage is raw, which means that there are cameramen scurrying around and all kinds of helpers moving in the background. But what that also means is that in its purest form, there is an audience of black people in direct conversation with what they are witnessing, uninhibited and unafraid of anyone who might demand that they quiet themselves. Yeah. Have you ever seen it? Have you seen Amazing Race? You know, I went to see it, but it was sold out and I couldn't get in. And it was, yeah, it was tough when it first hit theaters because it was yeah. such a limited release. Yeah. It was like so hard to see it. It was yeah. so hard to, to um, I got lucky and saw it. Well, I mean, I saw it three times in theaters, <laughs> but in different cities, you know? Yeah. Um, I was on the road so much that year and I just kind of popped in a few times. But 
there is something really amazing about watching it, uh, watching it come together as it comes together. Yeah. You know, uh, watching the kind of frantic pace of it and watching Aretha Franklin at the center of it, who for the majority of the film is the calmest and most stoic person <laughs> in the room. You know, and and I, that some of that was just her demeanor in that yeah. era, um, but it's so amazing to watch this whirlwind kind of yeah. unraveling around her—not just producers or whatnot, but really like the audience just f- spilling into the aisles and fall, the, the the choir behind her losing decorum and just yeah. like throwing praise books and all this. And Aretha <laughs> is just at you know the Reverend James Cleveland is crying mm. and all this stuff. And Aretha is just so stoic all the way through and just and just like doing her job. Yeah. You know, to the point where it's not even I'm sh- I can't speak for her obviously, but to the point where it's like it's not even a job. It's like a mission. <laughs> you know? I mean and that that watching it maybe like for the fifth time is when I first, when I first noticed like, gosh, Aretha like doesn't, I, she's just doing the work. Yeah. And that there's something really beautiful about that. You watch the audience in this and watch that kind of extraordinary interplay between performer and audience in that film. But then you also turn your attention to the audience watching this in a theater and talking about people turning up and watching this and having experiences with each other. You describe turning around and seeing people with handkerchiefs to their faces and not remembering when you started to cry during one of the times that you saw it in theatre, but knowing that you too were brought into an experience of audience that was um, transformative in a way that audience is uplifting rather than the negative gaze of demand. Yeah, you know, I'm such an audience watcher because I really love, be it for films or for concerts, um, I really love seeing how people are impacted and affected through a moment of shared witnessing. You know, if people are being impacted in a similar manner that I am based off of our shared witnessing. And um, that compels me and brings me closer to what feels like a type of emotional salvation. Some of it is because I think I just um, am prone to feeling very big feelings all the time. (laughs) And it's somewhat comforting to look around and realize I'm not by myself in that, in this pursuit of feeling first and processing second. Um, It feels really great to realize that I am not alone as someone who's, who's maybe chasing that idea. And so I am a bit of an audience watcher. I'm a bit, a bit of a big, uh, big audience watcher, um, because I, I do think a part of that process brings me closer to feeling the kind of comfort that I almost need to feel in order to kind of get to and through the well of emotion that I am often immersed in anyway, mm. and um, emerge from that well with something that is useful for me going forward in the world. So much of what you're saying is about listening 
and this act of audiencing even yourself um, in the space of public experience, whether that's you reading a poem, whether that's you sitting in a theatre or you being in the back of a room where there's a gig happening too. You're such a writer about the live music experience. And there is the way within which even in a large auditorium of live music, people are having private experiences that they probably couldn't have if they were only alone, that somehow the communal experience can bring you to yourself. What is that function, do you think, in terms of live music, in terms of performance, in terms of people coming together for something that is so personal as music that's going to drive into their body and give them a rhythm and a melody that's going to make them feel something? Yeah, because we all experience music differently, right? We all, ex- <clears throat> we all experience the same song differently the way that we all experience the same sunset differently or we all experience the same meal differently. Um, but... Through those differences, I also think that there are very small, occasional, shared moments, right, that uh, that happen in the form of knowing when to enter a robust audience sing-along, <laughs> knowing the exact kind of chorus that will send everyone to their feet, bouncing in something that feels like harmony, Um <laughs> To be a part of those kind of audiences, you know, like I, I came up going to punk shows and um, I feel like that was very much in act- the physicality of reaction. The, the physical reaction to music was such a big part of that experience and um, wanting to carry that and not miss out on that and and wanting to be a part of any place where people were kind of among each other and uh, collapsing into each other with the type of sound that, uh, with the type of fury that that the sound warranted. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's kind of, you know, where, where I feel most at home. And so, um, you know, much like, and I mean, to return to this idea of our, our many selves, the way that I react to things music, film, whatever, truly depends on which self of mine is at the forefront in that moment. And, um, you know, that's something I think worth considering too, for me always. And so when I think about audience, I think about it from that perspective as well. I know that sometimes, you know, the audience can have a gaze of profound envy and uh, almost a destructive gaze on the person on the stage. And you draw a distinction between audiences that are um, capable of supporting a person who's showing out. You make a distinction between showing off and showing out. And you tell over and over again in this uh, beautiful book, you tell the stories about how when people are showing out, that there is a, a community experience between the stage and the audience and something bigger than anybody could have created individually happens in that space. What is, how would you describe your ways of entering into the idea of, of showing out? Um, part of me wonders now, because I, I've been asked this a lot, and part of me wonders if showing out is something one isn't even aware of that they're doing. It's done without intention is a thing. Showing off is done with intention, certainly. But showing out perhaps is just a person in the zone, not even aware that they're doing what they're doing, but still rendering an audience uh, immovable with awe. 
in, in a specific audience of people who know what they're watching, right? Of people who know what to look for. Uh, it's it's like Steph Curry shooting a three and then nonchalantly turning to run back down court before the three even goes in, <laughs> you know? Um, that's, that's, that's a small intentional movement, but it's also someone saying, I am so present and in the zone, I don't even need to watch the outcome of this. <laughs> yeah. Watching a person in glory. Yeah, I think glory is a thing, right? That's it. Where... Um, and I don't want to say that showing off is bad either because mm. <laughs> little Richard showed off all the time and that was exquisite, right? Like little yeah. Richard is little, little Richard to show off with intention is also an art form. Mm. And so I look at someone like little Richard and he could show off like no one else. Mm. And when you do it well, you know, when you do it well, it really means something. Yeah, friends of mine were part of a jazz band and I used to go along and watch them and I'd see the way the bass player and the electric guitar player and the saxophonist would sometimes do a riff and then hear how the other would echo it a little bit later. Yeah, and they had, showing out, right? Yeah, but they had an enjoyment. You could see that they were looking at each other going, that was great. And their enjoyment with each other on a stage in a small bar was so infectious to the audience to be brought into a conversation yeah, yeah. Ja you know what? Jazz is like really the art form where showing out happens because <laughs> it's um, it can be a, langu a form without language, like a languageless form. Yeah. And so it relies on an audience's understanding of what they're witnessing and it relies on maybe a small nod or a wink or a gesture mm -hmm. um, that a player might might do when they've hit a good groove. It relies on, again being able to see the trick yeah. unfold. And I mean, you, you use the word player there. And I think the word play in this context isn't just about somebody who's playing an instrument, but in that experience of showing out, as you're calling it, they're playing too with the form, so fluid in the form that they're able to play with it and say, let me throw in a minor chord here or let me do something syncopated that was unexpected. And that brings a sense of delight and wonder because something new has been heard, even by the player themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the thing too. Like little Richard, for example, his mode of showing off was more, I think, for himself, it seemed, than for an audience because he was reaching a level of ecstasy that otherwise, that there was no container for it. That's why you get a wop, bop, boo, wop, blop, and boom, right? There's an ecstasy beyond language that the language, like language is a faulty container for that level of ecstasy. And, um, you know, and, and so that level of showing off is almost done for the creator yeah. of the, or, or the artist immersed in the sound and not yeah. necessarily for the audience. You know, when I've um, thought about poets engaging with the question of music, often I hear poets engage with the lyric of a song um, or the title of a song and they locate the power through the lyric or even the politic of a song through its lyrics. But I hear you over and over again on your podcast, Objective Sound, I hear you highlight that there is something about performance that is the message. It isn't just the lyric. The lyric is part of it, sure, but it's part of a much greater whole, a symphony, like you said earlier on. And it goes deeper than language. It goes deeper than words into a, perhaps a, a language of the body or a language, I mean, maybe of the soul. I don't think I've heard you call it that, but something elemental. I think so, yeah. I mean, I think um, 
so much of this is because um, language has always been, you know, I didn't study writing. I didn't grow up studying writing. I didn't go to college for writing. I don't have, I have an MFA. I have no quote unquote, no one could see you. I'm doing like large scare quotes, formal <laughs> training uh, in writing. And so most of my relationship with language is just hearing how my people spoke growing mm. up, which for me um, was something that connected me to an emotional understanding of the world that uh, in a way was detached from language entirely and detached more or, and attached more to sound and uh, tone again. And just the, the, the ways that black folks in particular can say one thing, but underneath it, there's something else. You know, I got, when working on Little Devil, I got so deep into Soul Train archives. I know. Watching I old Soul Train episodes, yeah. right? And there's this episode uh, where Morris Day performs. And after he performs, him and Don Cornelius do the like little, you know, interview. And you can tell that there's some kind of tension between them, even though they're like complimenting each other. Yeah. You know, like Don says, you know, it's good to see you, Morris. And it's like, yeah, good to see you too, you know, that kind of thing. But the, the way that the words they're saying doesn't match the tone of what's actually happening in their interaction is something I know so well mm. because the black elders around me did it for so long, which is why it's so easy for me. Now we're coming full circle, right? It's so easy for me in a poem to understand that what I'm saying is actually not mirroring what I'm feeling, which is why I love a song where the music does not match what is being expressed. Like a song like um, like Secondhand News by Fleetwood Mac. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That has this like bouncy kind of upbeat thing, but that song is emotionally horrifying, you know? Um, the actual emotions that that song is, is or Hungry Heart by Bruce Springsteen, you know? <laughs> um, which, yeah, it's like this fun danceable tune, but yo, that song is dark, like mm -hmm. real dark. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the mode I like to operate in. You explore that too in Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody, saying that, you know, you, you look to say that she wasn't a great dancer, but you look at what might that mean rather than just a, a, a pop catch phrase. You look down below that to go, what might it mean to want to dance with someone, perhaps away from a gaze? Yeah. Yeah. You know, where it's like, I, 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 I'm not a great dancer and I feel like any dance partner I've had in my life um, has, has been a partner chosen out of a type of mercy, you know, um, <laughs> or has, has done me a, a mercy. Mm. I'm not a bad dancer, but I'm not a great dancer. Mm. I, I know my limits. Um, and therefore I know, uh, I know um, my type of, my level of partnering, you know? <laughs> um, but I, I do think that away from, pulled away from, the expectations of the world. And now I'm using dance in a broad term yeah. that is not just about physical movement. Sure. Um, but to be pulled away from the expectations of the world uh, means that you can dance a little more freely. Hmm. Um, to unlatch oneself, I think especially for black folks, um, from the gaze of a country here in the States uh, that was not built to love you in any real tangible way means that I think your, your, your dance can be a little more freeing mm. if you allow for it. Mm. You again are turning the critical eye on the gaze 
And you overheard somebody say, um, how can black people write about flowers at a time like this, just after the 2016 election? Yeah, at a Ross um, Gay reading. Was, I was at a, right. Yeah, I was at a Ross Gay reading. <laughs> somebody said that shit. I was like, oh, sorry, I don't know if I can curse on here. That's um, fine. <laughs> I was like, yo, that's wild. And <laughs> I'll say this. I talked about this last night. I just did the, um, you know, I don't read out of Fortune for Your Disaster a ton, but last night was the... Um, Lenore Marshall reading, so I had had to had to read, and I was grateful too, especially because mm-hmm. Tim Siebels is there. We got to talk a bit, um, and I was talking about this 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 uh, this incident, and you know when that happened, I thought the easy thing for me to do would be to go home and write a poem about why that bothered me, why that person bothered me. Yeah. Um, but I think the more challenging thing was to strip it of this kind of individualistic impulse, and ask myself, a person who does not know a lot about flowers, did not then and still does not, despite writing 35 of these poems. 35? Um, yeah. <laughs> I think I made 14 of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, um, I think, 15 in the book and then 20 that didn't make the book, you know, um, which is like a whole other story, I suppose. But yeah. it, it felt smarter for me to say, well, how can I, as someone who doesn't know a lot about flowers, kind of try to implicate myself in this investment that I have in the flower as a tool of articulating mortality mm-hmm. and expectation around providing beauty despite a short life. Mm-hmm. And that felt more interesting to me than being like, well, I went to this reading and I heard this person say something and I was mad about it, which I was obviously, yeah, sure. but I didn't want to give that person a space in the poem. The end, giving that person a space in the poem uh, limited what the poem could be capable of to me. Um, mm-hmm. Could when, you, you know, I wanted, I wanted to do so much more. Could you read a few, Hanif? Could you read the one that begins, um, Dear Reader? And then maybe yeah, the one also sure. that begins, Forgive Me. Yeah, th- it's funny because that second one is the first one I wrote. Oh, really? Yeah, that's the first one that oh. was ever written. Do you want to read that one um, first then? Or, I mean, it doesn't matter what order. Oh, sure, I guess. Yeah, the, the first one and the last one I wrote are in the book. Um, but there are a lot in between, of course. Yeah. Uh, that that did not that did not make it. Um, yeah. How can black people write about flowers at a time like this? Forgive me, for I have been nurturing my well-worn grudges against beauty. I am hoping my neighbors will show some mercy on me for backing my car into the garden and crushing what I will say were the peonies, a flower with a short season, born dying. Some might say it's a blessing to know your entrances and exits. Forgive me, for I have once again been recklessly made responsible for the curation of softness and have instead returned with another torrent of violence. In the brief moment of their flourish, at the opening of spring, I drove across state lines to gather peonies for a woman who loved me once. As a way of surrender, I pull the already dying thing from the earth in a mess of tangled knots, and I insist that you must keep it alive for a year, even after it so desperately wants to be done with the foolishness of its living. The last thing I ask of this relationship is to burden you with another relationship. It is so delicious to define the misery you are putting a body out of, and just like that, we are talking about power. How awful this must be for you, I whispered as I closed my eyes and put the car into reverse. And here is the other. How can black people write about flowers at a time like this? 
Dear reader, with our heels digging into the good mud at a swamp's edge, you might tell me something about the dandelion head and how it is not a flower itself, but a plant made up of many small flowers at its crown. And Lord knows I have been called by what I look like more than I have been called by what I actually am. And I wish to return the favor for the purpose of this exercise, which, too, is an attempt at fashioning something pretty out of seeds, refusing to make anything worthwhile of their burial. Size me up and skip whatever semantics arrive to the tongue first. Say, that boy, he looked like a hollowed-out grandfather clock. He looked like a million-dollar god with a two-cent heaven. Like all it takes is one kiss, and before morning, you could scatter his whole mind across a field. And even the, in the first one, I was so struck by just toward the end of that poem, where you say, and just like that, we're talking about power. And somehow having the word power being highlighted so clearly in a poem and in a poem with the word flowers in its title, I think of flower power and all the kind of imaginations that that brings from movies and a particular era of a certain population of America. And then what you're doing here is talking about flowers and powers in terms of who says that who has the right to A, speak in multiplicities and B, speak about whatever they want to. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you peeped that. And it and it's like for me also a question of, um, you know, flowers don't have much control over their living, you know, or or over what they what they offer to the world. And that's true. I mean, that first one is true. I accidentally rolled over my neighbor's peonies. Um, <laughs> it feels true. It's to, so particular in the poem that you, yeah. I, I when I read that I thought this isn't a metaphor. This is a fact. Nah, I really I really rolled over the peonies, and I felt. <laughs> I felt really guilty for it. And still to this day, you know, I don't live there anymore, but whenever it's peony season, I, I buy some and drop them on the, you know, I put them in the, in the garden for a neighbor because they were so kind about it when it happened. And I was like, yo, these are, I don't know anything about flowers. But I know peonies have a really short season. So like, I would not be as, as gracious as y'all are being, but thank you. And so I, I go back and I go back and put, um, put peonies in my garden every year. Cause I still feel, you know, uh, my brain won't allow me to not feel guilt for things for a very long time. So. <laughs> Uh, I, and like in the in the second one that you read, as you spoke about the dandelion head and that, you know, the dandelion isn't a flower itself, but a plant made up of many small flowers at its crown. You're speaking, Which like, to be fair, I don't even know if that's true or not. Yeah. I just like the way it sounded. That might not be, I don't know if there's any horticulturists who are listening. Is that what they're called? <laughs> people who like know, know a lot about flowers. Flower people. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think I that's don't know the formal term. <laughs> But if they're listening, that might be wrong. I don't know. Don't don't come after me for that because I just, like, listen, I don't know. Okay. But what you're doing is you're making it so in the poem. Yeah. You know, because um, not to reference him again, but Terrence Hayes often says this thing to me, or he said this thing to me once. It's like, you know, <laughs> beauty over truth, you know? <laughs> and I think he was probably referring to like a more high stakes type of situation. But for me, in this case, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna do the beautiful thing without any regard for the potential for the truth thing. Yeah. I, I have an uncle who's very interested in, um, in verifiable facts. And one time I was telling a story to my grandmother and I was exaggerating a bit and he kept on correcting me. And my grandmother said, never interrupt a good story with the truth. Similar right. thing. Right. Um, I'd like to um, ask you if you would be happy to read another poem um, it's one, uh, I mean, maybe none of us are actually from anywhere. 
Oh gosh, yes. Uh, let me see if I can find that. <laughs> oh, that. Uh, if you don't have it, it's no worries. I've got loads of them selected. I might not have that. That's my first book, which yeah. I, I don't have at my desk, and I don't it. think that poem is published anywhere. Okay, yeah. There are poems in my first book that have been published places, but I feel like that one does yeah. not live anywhere on, on the internet. There's a way... So in, I feel like I've let you down. Oh, no. I mean, we can talk about the poem, though, because there's a way within which you speak um, about rhythm in the body and the inherited grief, not just the particular grief. And you live with both. You know, you, this particular first book, The Ground Ain't Worth March, you know, your mother's death is such a powerful force in that book and the continual return to exhaustion in the face of that particular grief and attention as a teenager to that particular grief. And then um, there's a, a broadening out too about what it means to inherit an experience of grief through a white gaze, a white predatory gaze and an audience that's expecting you to act in a particular way and demanding that. So grief, it seems to me, goes along with the question of the body and how you're speaking about it in this book. Yeah. And, you know, the crown is funny because, um, you know, that's like a concept book where the the person in the book is like a funhouse mirror version of myself. I mean, mm. that's in some ways the way I always write, but even more so in that book where it's kind of like, um, you know, that that character, so to speak, has very real trappings of my life lost a parent and grew up in a neighborhood that is my neighborhood and had a barber that is very much my barber all these things yeah. um but i needed that distance more than i normally do to say okay this isn't my exact life these are exaggerations of a life similar to mine close enough um and was that for safety hanif or was it for all kinds of artistic reasons or for a variety of things both. yeah i think safety is the, the primary reason but also for artistic reasons or for reasons of, um, you know, I think that distance allowed me an ability to um, make and create and think about the speaker in a way that was detached from myself. And so I didn't have to feel um, beholden to making like a documentary. Yeah. You know, um, I didn't have to feel like I was creating, you know, something that had to f be uh, airtight and strict in that way. Yeah. And was that also another experience on, of listening to yourself? Oh, of course. I mean, I think, you know, so much of this stuff is I'm a pretty intuitive person. Um, I think particularly when it comes to listening to what the work needs. Um, and I, I'm very much, you know, I, I let myself be guided by that primarily asking myself what the work is telling me it needs, um, and how far I need to push myself outside of, um, outside of some of my worst impulses to give the work what it needs. Yeah. You have written quite extensively, really, about anxiety, and I've noticed a profound vulnerability and generosity in the essays that you've written about anxiety. Are you happy to talk about that and to consider it? I mean, would you be able to speak a little bit about the way that you speak about anxiety and what you offer through your essays for that? 
Yes. I mean, I, I, I have a couple different um, anxiety disorders that I was diagnosed with um, in my 20s, though I had been feeling the effects of for much longer than that. But you don't know, you know, for me, I, it's hard to, to pinpoint, you know, I grew up playing sports um, and I would be very nervous a lot of times in that process, but would just think, well, this is just everyone, everyone feels this way. Uh, the stakes are high and, you know, I'm playing a, a tense game. So everyone should feel this level of nervousness. And then um, that started to translate to my social interactions. But I thought, well, you know, social interactions can be tense. And so this is just the way that people feel. Um, but I began having like large panics, like large, actual, very real panic attack type situations uh, in my 20s and was diagnosed with a couple anxiety disorders and um, depression that was kind of fueled by those anxiety disorders. And, um, you know, I, I think this pushed me to become more, to work on the levels of emotional awareness that I was operating with, you know, to have, um, and again, to be generous with myself mm. and what I know I'm capable of. And um, and also to think about anxiety uh, as as something that um, is just built into my world. It's like a it operates at a low hum at all, at all times, and yeah. some days the volume is just louder than others. Yeah, you spoke about that volume being turned up and down, being controlled by a small and experimental child, which um, made me burst out laughing and then also feel frightened about this experimental child. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I don't have control over the volume, you know, it's always like, um, I and I, I think honestly, gosh, I've, I've um, I do think re-entering the world in whatever, yeah, whatever, you know, case that may be for me. It's funny, I got vaccinated a bit ago, but my life hasn't really changed much um, because the idea of going into the world is still like a little alarming. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, I, I think that I'm not yet prepared for that. Yeah, because like I, I know that anxiety can either make you want to be um, completely isolated or completely immersed. And in a global pandemic where isolation and immersion have come under enormous kinds of political and policing gazes, this is um, this is a language that many people are and will be speaking over the next few years as more and more people get vaccinated, but then do the complicated work of trying to figure out what social interaction might mean, what consent might mean. What, yeah. what wisdom yeah. do you have as you think about what that might mean for you? Or are you discovering that yourself? I think I'm discovering that myself. Um, you know, I've spent the majority of this pandemic living alone and just like me and my dog. And Wendy. Um, Wendy, yeah, what? dear Wendy, uh, who has uh, been, I mean, I, I, I had Wendy before the pandemic. I yeah. had Wendy in like, uh, you know, 2019, but, uh, she has been an excellent pandemic companion, though. Uh, we have, she has become, you know, she's also an anxious dog. And so um, she has anxiety and, and we've become a bit attached to each other. She she has become more attached to me than 
Uh, she was before, which I think <laughs> I have some worries about when whenever people begin to like slowly make their way over to the house and all that. But yeah, um, you know, I think for me, it's coming to terms with um, how comfortable I feel um, being close to people, which I do believe in a type of closeness with the people I love. Yeah, you know. Um, and and to not to have not seen so many of them in so long, you know, it's it's um, yeah, it, it's it's challenging, but but really, a challenge I feel like I'm up for. And I mean, the processes that you describe of listening to yourself are artistic processes as well as power analyses, but they're also a form of self care in terms of thinking what what will work for me today and what won't rather than what should I be doing? Because that's an imagination of a of an expectant gaze from an audience who only has one right. imagination about how you should act and how you should be. Yeah, and I'm up for, you know, I'm big on like taking things. I'm a big day by day, minute by minute person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where I'm kind of like, I, I just need that. I require that. Um, you know, I require... Uh, not my anxiety requires that I don't try to um, take on too much at once or think too far in the future. I'm just not capable of it. Mm. And um, so, yeah, there's a way that um, I'm seeking gentleness um, in that realm too. I saw on social media, you know, in December, you were writing out saying, you know, as people approach the holiday season, um, you were offering some ideas about how you've made other holiday seasons that you've spent alone be something that works for you. And given that more people than would normally be spending the season alone would have been spending it alone in the season of 2020, you were offering some practices. And I I read through all the responses, so many people saying thanks and so many of the ideas that you had about listening to particular albums through or returning to albums or not trying to do too much intensity. There was a profound curatorial kind of care that you had, both from the point of view as an artist, as well as from the point of view of somebody that was saying, here, look, this might help. And if it does, here it is. There was deep vulnerability in that too. Yeah, I mean, I think a part of me is really rooted in wanting to connect with people still yeah that's that's why i write that's why i started writing i think that's why i um you know i I really want to feel a connection with people and i'm someone who has spent you know the the most of my holidays alone because of you know i was raised muslim we don't really celebrate much uh in terms of actually the actual like american holiday calendar the quote-unquote traditional american holiday calendar um and so most of my Thanksgivings are spent alone. Most of my Christmases are spent alone to the point where for me, it's, it's really celebratory. Uh, I love the quiet and I love the calm. Um, but I am also acutely aware that particularly this past year, it was not at all celebratory for many people who yeah. were either experiencing this for the first time or, and, and I will say that there are many years where it's not celebratory for a lot of people who are perhaps um, struggling with, yeah going home or being home or, or feeling in some way exiled from their family. Um, but I was very aware that this past year was, there was an influx of people who, you know, were experiencing this for perhaps the first time. Um, 
And uh, it seemed useful for me to say, like, you know, here's how I do it. Might not work for you, but like, yeah. I'm I'm pretty much a veteran. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> when it comes to, and I get that my circumstances are different. You yeah. know, my circumstances are, we're, we're talking about different things here, but but I'm a real, I'm a veteran of this, you know? Yeah. Um, I've, I've done it and I've made it work for me. And, um, you know, there are ways to kind of get through the day that I hope can work for you. And, and that's all I got. But yeah. um, it's, it's, out of, it's out of an understanding that to be alive is difficult. Uh, a living, um, I don't want to get too, too perhaps dark or whatever, but I, you know, be alive is to immerse oneself in, in either the potential for suffering or a very real constant in present suffering. And so then for me, the questions have to become about how does one survive in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of knowing that living presents endless opportunities for suffering and sometimes fewer opportunities for pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it's, the question then becomes, how can life, um, not only how I, how can I survive, but is there a way that I can express an investment in shared survival? Um, one that both uplifts my living and the living of others. Yeah, there there is, you know, I've I've read so much of your stuff in preparation for this. And there was a, a series of letters that were published between you and a friend, uh, Dr. Eve Ewing, that mm. were so moving. And you were just writing to each other. I mean, you knew these letters were going to be published. And there's a kind of a self-consciousness about that as you reveal yourselves to each other and then continue to recognize that there is a, a powerful friendship between the two of you. And in, in one of those letters, you spoke about music you said, it always occurred to me that the music was worth writing about with reverence. I had watched music and a love for it dragged so many of my friends back from whatever ledges they were standing on. And if there's anything that has kept my people alive for longer than they might have been alive otherwise, then I believe it is worth honouring. That yeah. seems to be rules to, ways to live a life for you, Hanif. It is. I mean, I, and I think, gosh, I forgot about that, those letters. I, I did love writing those. And, you know, Eve and I did an event last week, which was really great and um, really wild because, you know, we haven't seen each other physically mm-hmm. in so long. Um, you know, like, well, you know, before the pandemic, even, you know, we hadn't mm-hmm. seen, we haven't seen, I haven't seen Eve since like maybe December, 2019. And, I read and then our cameras flicked on. So she was off camera while I was reading mm. and then she came on camera. We both just started crying. <laughs> um, uh. But yeah, I mean, I, I really, uh, I really want to, because I'm, for me, I'm aware of how life has been difficult. And I'm, because of that, I'm acutely aware of the things that have felt to me like mercy or felt to me like, uh, something that has helped me get through, I am very serious about honoring that getting through in the tools that help one get through because that's those are other things. That's something else that is not promised. And um, none of us are promised to find a thing that will lessen um, our suffering. Mm-hmm. And so to find that 
it feels vital to uplift it when you find it. Yeah. And you uplift it for yourself, but also uplift other performers through your work and other artists who are doing it. And you offer that out as um, keys for comfort to so many people through your work. Is that deliberate or is it just an intuitive sense to say, look, um, here's something beautiful or is it something entirely different? At this point, it feels intuitive because mm -hmm. I get so excited, you know, <laughs> about beauty. I'm so excited about I can't hold it for myself. I don't want to be selfish. I don't want to hoard. I don't want to hoard anything, but I especially don't want to hoard beauty in my excitement. So if I'm holding something I'm excited about in my palm, I want to be able to open my palm and show it to someone. Mm -hmm. And I think that's my ethos as a music fan, as a fan of culture, as a as someone who has survived a great many things. I, I don't want to hold on to anything that has done a service to my living. Um, I really am invested in, in the sharing of those those things. You're speaking now, Hanif, and um, you, you, you write also about the griefs that you've lived through, um, the systemic griefs, as well as the personal griefs from within a family. Um, what's it like for you to offer these griefs as um, moments to reflect on your life, um, but in quite a public way, even though they're very private things? It's interesting because I think I'm I'm a pretty private person. Yeah. So there are elements of my work that feel public, but I do think I've gotten very good at um, the dispensing of information, figuring out <laughs> what information to dispense where and when. Yeah. And through that, becoming very good at withholding. Yeah. And knowing what to withhold, which is why I I almost appear as a funhouse mirror version of myself mm. in so much of my work. Um, because I'm thinking really clearly and thoughtfully about um, sharing and withholding and, you know, how that too is a process. Because, I mean, there's a great deal of, I think, mystery behind my life and living, which is by design. You know, I'm, I, am, I am ultimately a, a very private person. Mm. Um, and... Um, I, I like to, to be, I like to keep some things for myself when I can. Yeah. And even the way you're speaking about this, Hanif, I'm struck by how you're curating the question about your own performance and who on the stage of your public life, who you want to be, and then also deliberately keeping other parts of yourself or other narratives or other experience for offstage for your private life. And that is a, an analysis of power when it comes to the question of performance rather than demand. Yeah, it's important to consider, you know, there's a, there's a part of myself that, that always will get to uh, go backstage and be something different than what I am on stage. Yeah. And it's as simple as that kind of. Mm. There's one or two other questions that I had and then um, I'll just bring in the producers to hear if there's any other questions that they had. Is that okay for you? Will be absolutely great. Um, let me see. I I wanted to go back. Let me find this in my notes here. Uh, here we are. Did you did you do um, a degree in marketing? Was that your primary degree when you studied? Yeah, I studied marketing. Uh, <laughs> don't know. I mean, no real reason. 
But I found yeah. that so interesting because one of the things that I know about marketing, and I, I possibly only know two things about marketing, but one of the things I know is that it's an intelligence in the question about what's happening in the space between consuming and giving and that it's uh, paying um, attention to that gap in between the two. And you bring that analysis of marketing and the sometimes malevolent um, powers that can be present in marketing through. And I saw on Twitter um, a good few months back that you were speaking about the cover for A Little Devil in America, this extraordinary mm-hmm. cover of Willa May Riker and Leon James dancing the Lindy Hop. And as I read about it then, I saw that Willa May Ricker was the first dancer to stand up to Herbert White for fair pay. There are so yes, many indeed. ways within which you are paying financial attention to the question of performance. Who's profiting from this? And is it the performer or are they actually paying the cost? That's one of the lenses right. you bring. Yeah, yeah, it's such a great observation, especially, you know, Willa May Ricker's history is... Um, deserves more than just a book cover, but uh, I, I did love having her as one of the artists in the book cover because of how she really upset the notion of um, who benefits from performance, which was another central question of the book. Yeah. Um, it's more than just like giving people their roses, it's like, but who can get what they actually deserve? Um for what they're doing. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm bad to be honest, like market, you know, I, I, I wasn't very good at school. I, <laughs> I don't know anything about marketing to this day, but, um, I, I do think that a part of the project of the book and the part of the project of Willa May Ricker's living, of course, was trying to answer the question of who is able to get what they deserve for what they're doing to know one's worth. Yeah. John A. Powell, in another life, I worked in conflict resolution and John A. Powell um, offered some questions once at a gathering I was at when he said a way of examining the question of power in situations of conflict is to ask three simple questions. Who decides? Who pays? Who wins? Mm-hmm. And I've thought about that so often in conflict resolution mm-hmm. settings. And I found you asking that over and over again, not just in A Little Devil in America, also in your other um essays online as well as your your books of cultural criticism where you begin to ask what is the contract that's happening in this moment of cultural experience and who's paying the cost and maybe it is the person from whom much has already been taken and and what do we do when the contract is broken mm-hmm. right i mean like yeah because there's no recourse in unwritten contracts are there you can't go back to no. it to say check it out i've got rights here i mean i'm, I'm in, in some ways I'm struggling today because of the news of Adam Toledo, yeah. which I've been struggling with that for a while. And then the, I didn't watch the video, but the understanding of the body cam footage um, introduced a new level of that struggle for me. And a major frustration I have is that the mayor of Chicago got up in front of a audience of reporters yesterday and said, well, we hope people will be calm. And I think what a foolish thing to say when police murdered a 13-year-old with his hands up. Mm. That's, that's a, I mean, the, and granted, this isn't the first breaking of a contract, but that breaks a contract. You, you don't get to call for calm. Mm. You don't get to. And it is almost insulting to call for calm 
I would love to hear the argument for calm from that mayor, from any mayor who, after the police murder someone, calls for calm. I, I want to hear the argument in plain language for calm, because that is a breaking of a social contract. Granted, our, you know, in the States, our social contracts are flimsy and don't mean anything anyway, but, um, you know, they've been broken many times over and don't really hold any water. But that's beyond the point I'm trying to make here, which is that when they are broken so explicitly and egregiously and many people lied to uphold their breaking, including that mayor, I, I don't really want to hear a call for calm. That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. It's it's trying to dictate a certain kind of um, performance and response that you're right. rejecting the premise of. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry hmm. to go off on that. It's just been a hard. It's been a, it's been a hard oh, twenty four hours. Well, I, I was wondering if you would wish to. Um, I I'd, I'd had a quick look at your Twitter feed this morning and seen um, what you were writing and found it very powerful. But I didn't want to assume that that was something I should ask about. So. Um, it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's, um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a week, it's been a year, it's been a life and all yeah. that. But I, I do think especially this, this week has been, it's been a lot. Yeah. Memory is so much part of your work. Like I, I read, let me find the quote at the back of one of your books. Um, I too am an avid liner notes reader. Um, mm. I used to memorize liner notes when I was younger, not be, not for, not deliberately, but just as, um, a certain form of adoration for the artists that I loved. And so I always read the back of poetry books as well. Um, and you have, let me see here. Where is it? Here we are. Got it. In um, The Crown Ain't Worth Much, in the notes of that you spoke about, this book is dedicated to the memory the memory of any moment you have loved or been in love and the people who lived in that moment with you, for my mother, for the changing city I once knew and the one I love still and then Tyler and Mike in the barber shop, and you mentioned other people too. And I'm so struck by how in another place you say that, you know, you've given up on wanting to bring back the dead, especially to a world that isn't any better than when they left it. But I mm. do long for the moments when they were alive. And that is a private grief, but it's also a, a public calling to attention and a public acknowledgement of the very thing that you're talking about to say what is the possibility of mourning in a world where you're actually not sure you'd want the dead to come back to it because the world isn't interested in changing for the benefits of black populations yeah but I, I will say that like I think I've learned to mourn in a way that just isn't rooted around sadness and mm. or longing for a return yeah right and that feels better yeah because I, I think I've learned to mourn in a way that is celebratory, <laughs> that is um, expressing gratitude for the real gift of carrying the memory of someone who is not here anymore. And not only carrying that memory, but carrying everything that person gave um, and, and carrying everything I learned from that person while they were still here. And that's a type of mourning, but it's a type of mourning that I think serves my better impulses. 
you turn a lot of attention in A Little Devil in America to the question of the black funeral and your experience of the black Christian funeral as the very thing you're talking about, mourning in a way that is a celebration, that is uh, an embodiment of what life, remembering a life well lived when that life has been given, you know, the rights to live its own life well. You turn attention to, to what the power of a good funeral can be. Yeah. And that it's not, again, that it's not just about the end. I mean, mm. a, a part of a funeral is seeking closure, but I like to also think about it as an opportunity to unlock uh, a new opening, you know, mm. to, it, for me, any closures that were most closures that I have come across have offered opportunities to unlock something else, mm. uh, to find a new opening through which I can have a revelation or um, to up my levels of emotional awareness. And so I'd like to think of a funeral as the same thing. Hmm. I was so moved the way you, you wished for um, uh, an entourage of black people clapping for Don Cornelius on his walk into heaven, uh, as you spoke about him in the book. Yeah, you know, I think um again, like if 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 folks could leave the world in, in the way that they gave to the world or um you know, if they could be celebrated um in the way they gave to the world, I think that felt appropriate. And it also, you know, I don't I don't think a lot about things like legacy or, or whatever. Um but it does make me think about the fact that you know, I will not be here forever and everyone I love who's here right now won't be here forever. And Mm. um, it feels important to set up tools through which everyone I love can be mourned in a really luminescent and complete fulfilling way. Mm. Um, That's me coming to the end of my questions, Hanif. Um, Maybe some of the producers have some things they'd like to add, but um, we're nearing the end. Thank you. Thank you. These yeah. are great. It was good to talk. That's great to talk to you. Let me just see. Yeah, Patrick, I'm curious. Um, I don't think you talked about this and I came in late, so I apologize, Hanif, but I'm curious to hear about Hanif talk about why he decided to move back to Columbus, Ohio, um, having grown up there. I'm now having been someone that has lived in the Midwest for eight years, there's a way that people talk about the Midwest in the United States and particularly on the coast, the coast. And I'm just curious if you are interested in talking about that at all. Oh yeah, though. It's not very interesting. I mean, I never wanted to leave Columbus. You know, I, I, no, I didn't like leave Columbus joyfully or willingly or willingly, I guess, but not like joyfully. And so, uh, I mean, I left because my partner got a job in Connecticut and that's just where we went. But I, I, yeah, because I didn't want to leave, like returning was kind of, uh, I, I do wish there was a better story, but no. Nah, no, that's actually just lovely to hear. I was more curious about it. I think I love where the two of you have gone in this conversation and it's been so powerful what you've been saying about what I'm saying is not mirroring what I'm feeling. I think I'll be thinking about the songs that you listed, especially Hungry Heart. I'm a big Bruce fan. Um, and what you said, Hanif, for a long time. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks very much, Hanif, for your time. I've been looking forward to talking to you and have been relishing the opportunity to spend lots of hours reading your work. And so it's been a, a powerful experience and I'm really grateful for your time. Oh, this is wonderful. And, and hopefully we can stay in touch. Yeah, it'd be great.